Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we listen back to my conversation with biologist David George Haskell, who says, quote, every vocal species has a distinctive sound. Every place on the globe has an acoustic character made from the unique confluence of this multitude of voices. We'll talk to Haskell about his book, Sounds Wild and Broken, where he marvels at the power and diversity of our sonic landscape and warns that this diversity is at risk. How to really listen to Earth's many voices, from the sounds of waves to birdsong, and what gets lost when we smother or destroy them, that's next on Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Sounds. So many sounds fill our world. Never in the history of Earth have sounds been so rich and varied, writes biologist David George Haskell. Never has this diversity been so threatened. We live amid riches and despoliation. This hour, we'll explore and celebrate the sound of wind and waves, of birds, insects, and humans, and how these sounds came to be from the silent beginnings of our planet. And we'll learn why, Haskell says, we face an acoustic crisis. David Haskell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mina. It's a pleasure to be with you here in this sound world of of the radio. I know. We really do inhabit a soundscape ourselves in many ways. And uh, actually, we also ask listeners to contribute to it. Uh, Before the show, we asked them to share their favorite sounds from the natural world and got so many lovely responses. Listeners wrote on Instagram things like, a light rain falling on tilled soil, birds chirping in the early morning, Elephants, dolphins, the sound of walking on a gravelly lot, morning doves, crickets, babbling brooks, creaking tree limbs on a windy day, and my neighbor's roosters. I'll also play a uh, a voicemail we got here. Hi. Our favorite nature sound is crows. That was complete with imitation. I know. Isn't that awesome? I'm curious if you have a favorite sound. Uh, You know, my favorite sound is usually the one I'm I'm listening to at the moment. But, you know, right now here in, I'm uh, speaking in the the southeast of the United States now, and the chorus frogs and the spring peepers are waking up from their winter slumbers. And just the exaltation of sound that emerges from from the little pools by the side of the road or the swamps back in the the deep woods is just an extraordinary thing for the ears. And then I feel it 
the, the sound suffuses my body and, and lifts me out of some despondency of winter thinking, yes, I made it <laughs> another year. And, and it's a moment of, of gratitude. Uh, here, here we are on this, on the spinning earth, another set of seasons have, have passed. And it's one of those yearly acoustic markers for me that gives me great joy. Yeah, you're really describing the power of, of sound so beautifully to, to lift us. Um, one of the things I was really struck by as I was reading your book and also hearing the examples given to us by listeners was how many referenced that their favorite sounds were made by birds. We had Joe tweet, hummingbirds' wings sound like a lightsaber, and James tweet, the common loon sounding off on a lake at dusk or dawn as his favorite sound. Uh, but as you remind us in the book, uh, a third of North American songbirds have disappeared in the last half century. And so this is in part what you mean, right, when you say the diverse sounds of the world are now in crisis? Yes, it is. And I think birds are a good way into this. Certainly in my own journey, birds were the gateway drug, if you like, into, into <laughs> listening. Uh, I, I started listening to birds and identifying species and then for some, for some individuals and coming to understand all the nuances of the landscape and the seasons through them. And, and many people have this connection, I think, because birds are very much like us in, our, in their sensory systems. They're very acoustic and they're also very visual. And so we tend to use them as symbols in religions and in nation states and for sports teams rather than mice or chipmunks or crickets and other, other creatures that are just as fascinating but don't use the same communication channels that, that we do. And that we've, in a way, we've convergently evolved to become more like birds than like mammals in our sensory systems. And Listening to them, of course, brings us great joy, but it also teaches us that we do live in an age of diminishment for many species. As you mentioned, a third of the, in, the best estimate is the third of the individual songbirds of, in North America have disappeared over the last few decades. And listening is a way of discerning that decline because, for example, when scientists go out to survey birds, Almost 90%, and in, in tropical areas, it's more like 99% of the birds that you would count in your survey, you get through your ears because you're in a, say, for example, in a de dense forest. Right. You can't see the birds. And this is why the birds are singing for the first place is to, to reach out through visual barriers, to, to, to reach other creatures that, that are not in, in a direct line of sight. And then as conservationists and the scientists, people can then tune into that to, to gain an assessment of, of the, the loss, the diminishment of many birds. Now, there are other, a few bird species that have done very well. So there are winners and losers on balance. There are more species in trouble than there are the, uh, rising at the present moment. Mm. So we are experiencing a decline as opposed to this incredible evolution that you described of sounds just proliferating, growing, diversifying, and expanding. You talk about our special connection to birds, but you've said if there's an acoustic hell, it's in today's oceans. Why do you say that? Yes, well, the oceans live in this place that is beyond our senses. Uh, not just the fact that we're terrestrial beings, of course, with, with ears and eyes and, and touch receptors adapted to our terrestrial world, but also because of the physics of sound. When the sound 
below the ocean waves, if you're standing on the ocean shore, you won't hear, hear it unless it's very, very loud because most sound waves that come up from the deep ocean will hit the surface and then bounce back. So there's a, there's a it's almost like a, a mirror on the, on the top surface of the ocean. And so even when we are close to the ocean, we are, we're, have a disconnection, a sensory disconnection from mm. what's happening below the waves. And over the last several decades, shipping noise has vastly increased. Lots of sonar from particularly military uh, vessels and also seismic exploration of the oceans where, where air guns are used. They blast off every few seconds over weeks, over months, and turn the ocean into this tumult of sound that is almost unsurpassed in any terrestrial environment. And, and the, the particular problem for ocean creatures, this isn't just annoying or an inconvenience. This destroys their ability to communicate one to another. Mm. And sometimes the sound is loud enough that it's actually destroying them from the inside physiologically because sound in the ocean flows through the skin into the watery bodies of creatures. We hear through our ears, a little bit through our skin, ocean creatures hear through their ears, but the sound actually penetrates their body far more than sounds do in the terrestrial world. So they are immersed 24-7 in this. I want to play some underwater audio that you provided. This was taken from a hydrophone off St. Catherine's Island in Georgia. Can you tell us what we're hearing here? So the the sounds in, in that recording, the, the crackly little um, shimmery cloud of I think I, I feel I feel it is a very silvery kind of, of sound of a snapping shrimp, tiny little shrimp that are found in warm waters all over the world that snap their little claws together, making this incredibly loud, it's less than a tenth of a millisecond pulse, extraordinarily loud, but but on a very small scale. And thousands and thousands of these unite to create this shimmering uh, uh, cloud of sound. And into that, we're hearing fish, toadfish, making the little bleating sound, the little wah, wah sound. These are the male toadfish that defend nests and clean the eggs. The females come and lay the eggs there. And then the males look after the eggs until, until they're grown. And the knocking sounds are some... Uh, silver perch and Atlantic croakers. So, th so the below the water world, a few decades ago, we, we thought it was silent, but now we know the underwater world is full of incredibly rich sounds. And most of that world, there isn't much light. It's very turbid. And so sound is the principal way in which creatures connect one to another. I, I want to hear this now with... Engines added. This is another piece of audio that you provided. So you're really giving us a sense here of what it sounds like when we humans sort of smother this ocean noise. 
Yeah, and you know, an important thing to note about that is that is just one very small outboard engine. So this is a, a tiny little boat compared to the great ocean-going ships or to seismic exploration. And yet, at close range, it, it smothered all the other sounds around it. Many of the, the fish stopped making their communicative sounds. And that outboard engine, if it was just one outboard engine, it would be a little consequence, a little something like a little thunderstorm coming over for that area. But the problem is that the number of engines keeps going up year by year. We are a, whether we realize it or not, a species that does most of its trade through the oceans. It's estimated that 90% of the goods that are traded worldwide spend some of their time on a ship coming across the Pacific Ocean or go across the Atlantic or down into the, uh, the South Pacific and moving oil and liquefied natural gas and cars and telephones and all, all these things that we use in our everyday lives. Many of them have been on ships and every single one of those ships was pumping an enormous amount of sound down into the ocean. Some of that sound is a, is a cloud around around the ship, you know, it goes out for a kilometer or two, but some of it gets into these deep channels within the ocean where it can be transmitted across entire ocean basins. So unlike noise, say, if there's a noisy diesel truck running outside your, your apartment block, you're the only one who's really hearing that. People several miles away aren't. In the oceans, that same truck would be would be audible over dozens of kilometers and potentially hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. It sounds like what you're getting at is that we're very willing to pump a lot of sound into the ocean because we ourselves don't hear it. We, we're coming up on a break, but that is part yeah, of the issue. Yes, yeah, sensory disconnection from the consequences of our action uh, is indeed the foundation of a lot of trouble in this world, not just in the oceans, but in tropical forests. Uh, in all sorts of agricultural areas. We'll have more with David Haskell after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Lewis living in Las Vegas. The sound that I miss the most is the California Tohi. It uh, has a beautiful call, and it makes me think of home. And I live in a place with no birds now. Its call goes something like this. It's one of my favorite birds, and it makes me think of California and how much I miss it. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Lewis. You're listening to Forum. 
I'm Mina Kim, and we're talking about sounds, your favorite sounds, and about the world's sonic diversity and why it's under threat with David Haskell, a biologist who's written a new book, Sounds, Wild and Broken Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. David Haskell is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Biology and Environmental Environmental Studies at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Tell us what's your favorite sound. Describe it for us and tell us why. Or what's a sound that you already miss, like like Lewis? You can tell us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can post them on Twitter or Facebook or at KQED Forum. You can post them on Instagram or email them to forum at kqed.org. And this listener writes, The Call of the Red-Winged Blackbird. And Ron writes, Mockingbirds are the best musicians among birds. Another listener writes, Crickets in the distance on a warm night. And another listener on Instagram says, Mosquitoes zipping by your ear just as you doze off. Ah, the diversity of the sounds that we love, David Haskell. Um, it's re- what? what a remarkable collection there. Of, you know, and Lewis's point about memory and home, I think, is a really important one. Is that for so many of us, even if we're not consciously aware of it, we formed a connection with the soundscape of home, whether it's birds or if, if you grow up in the city, it's also the sounds of the, the city, the people picking up trash on, on the street or the music that was played from the apartment buildings or the sounds of a market. Those are some of the sounds that I remember from growing up in, I grew up in, in Paris and in, in France. So I have memories of birds from, from the city, particularly birds singing in courtyards with a lot of echoey resonance happening but also human-made sounds. And years later, we remember this and we're drawn back. And those memories serve as a compass back to home in in many ways. This also tells us something about what's special of humans. If you give, about humans, if you give some of our close cousins, primates, acoustic memory tasks, they do fairly well on the short term, but they don't have a great long-term memory. Because their world is not oriented so much around sounds, around as ours is, spoken language and song. It's around gesture and touch and aroma for them, their culture. Mm-hmm. One of our qualities is to be able to remember sound, which allows us to sing and speak and to understand one, one another with such nuance because we have great memories. Yes, you, it's such a great description of how sound is actually far more special than I even realized, someone who works in sound or even understood. You you describe how sound is ephemeral, but you also talk about how sound is and the power that it has to evoke the kinds of memories and emotions as you describe. But, but you also say that sound is generative. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. And this is one of the things that really stunned me about doing the research for this book is going back in time and realizing how much sonic connection from one creature to another or from one non-living entity to another has been a creative force in biological evolution, cultural change, but also in the the makeup of the universe. The very first sound waves in the universe were the sound waves that that passed through the hot plasma of the the universe when it was a compact, blazing little ball of of heat. And in that plasma were sound waves passing. As, As the universe expanded, the plasma cooled 
And those sound waves still run through the universe today as the microwave background radiation that astronomers can pick up with, the, with their instruments. And the peaks of those little sound waves became the first clusters of atoms around which the stars and galaxies formed. And when astronomers measure the distance between galaxies in the sky, they find that on average, they're about 500 million light years apart, which is the distance between the peaks of those sound waves in our expanded universe. So the first sound waves of the universe seeded the stars and the galaxies. And then once life got evolved on planet Earth, sound became a way for one creature to connect to another. And of course, connection opens possibility, mm. opens possibility for in the breeding season for mates to find one another, for parents to communicate to offspring, for cultures to develop, all sorts of amazing beauty and diversity emerges because of sonic connection from one being to another. Yes, you point out how for more than nine-tenths of its history, Earth lacked any communicative sounds, but then you describe, I think, this like cricket-like creature, Permostradilus, am I saying that right? <laughs> yeah, Permostradilus, yes. Permostradilus that lived about 270 million years ago. You you say this is a contender for the first creature to communicate by sound. What what makes you say that? Well, it's actually a very hard thing to to determine because there hasn't been much research into the to the deep origins of acoustic communication. I spoke to a, a lot of paleontologists in, in writing this book, and as far as I can tell, for the terrestrial world, this is the first known singer. I, one of my hopes for the book is it will inspire people to go and look deeper into the fossil record and, and to find other examples, perhaps older examples. But this insect is, is known from some wings that were encased in mud and then eventually fossilized. And on the wings, there are tiny little raised ridges with nubs on them, almost like the ridges and nubs on the wings of modern crickets and katydids that they used to sing. When we hear those chirps, what we're hearing is the wings rubbing over one another and, and uh, a little plectrum strums on, on a raised uh, ridge of, of nubs. Permostridulus had this in a, um, in a more crude form than the, the, the beautifully sculpted versions that we see today, but it's quite likely that a very good contender for the first singer on planet Earth. Well, we're listening to your reconstruction of this cricket-like creature. Let's hear some more. So how did you create this sound? Yeah, so, so I want to emphasize this is a speculative reconstruction, <laughs> right. of course, uh, because uh, you know without the living creature, we don't know exactly how it used the sound or even indeed why. It may have been a defensive thing, making a little sound to get away from predators, or it may have been used in a breeding display. All of that is speculative. So what I did was take measurements from the fossilized wing and compare them to measurements from modern day crickets. And I think listeners will appreciate that this the sound we just heard is quite a bit lower. It's almost frog-like. It's lower than most modern crickets. And that's because the nubs on the wing of Permostridulus were pretty widely spaced, pretty uneven. And so when those rub together, they make a, a lower sound, a little bit like a, um, a mole cricket, which is a living species now, a fairly large cricket with widely spaced nubs. So I took measurements and then went into a, a 
sound manipulation software and arranged the sound waves at what I thought would be the right frequency for that, that type of, of wing, and then recreated this, this little chorus of sounds. One thing that is very hard to know, though, is exactly how fast those wings were moving, because, of course, a fast-moving wing would make a, a sound of a different uh, pitch and also a different loudness than, than a, a slowly moving wing. And those are mysteries that we'll have to wait till uh, uh, you know, the afterlife to ask some questions of the deities. Exactly how did this wing work? That would be one of the first questions out of my mouth. Well, regardless from those, those beginnings, we've come to these incredible sounds. And I want to play now a recording that you provided from the Western Amazon in Ecuador just after dawn. I think you called it Evolution's Creativity Reaches Its Sonic Zenith. I cannot, I cannot even imagine how many creatures must be making sounds in that recording. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And this is a recording from a forest that, as far as we know, is the most biodiverse place on the planet. If you count up the number of bird species there in just a few hectares, there are 400 bird species. There are tens of thousands of insect species crowded in, in, into every hectare. Um, for, for botanists, the, the tree diversity, there are more trees in one hectare than you could find in a, in a year looking around in, in North America. So a place of extraordinary acoustic richness, many, many different layers of sound. Of course, the recording that, I, that, that you shared there is just the sonic range that we humans can hear. There are crickets and other insects communicating at higher frequencies above, above the range that we can hear. So there's a whole other layer that we're not aware of. And then other insects are communicating through the wood in those trees because mm. lots of insects don't communicate by making sound in air. They make sound by putting vibrations down through their legs into twigs and bark. And then the sound shoots through the twig and goes up the legs of another insect, which hears the song. And often they duet through the solid medium of, of wood. And so that, that's a whole other acoustic world uh, that our ears are, are very poorly tuned to. So when I was I visited this place many times, it's a Tiputini Biodiversity Research Station in the, in, uh, the eastern part of Ecuador, extraordinary research station in, in an, an amazing place. I, I'm often reduced to tears by the beauty and the diversity of the sounds and the sensory environment. And then at other times, I feel utterly oppressed and unable to deal with the sensory overload. So it's, so it's a place of extremes, of these soaring feelings of exaltation and the beauty and diversity of life, and also the inability to, the crushing inability to be able to, to even listen properly and grasp <laughs> it all with my ears. Yes. Let me go to caller Mark in Riverside. Hi, Mark. Hi, thank you for having me. Sure, go right ahead. So I have a question for you. I'm trying to figure out the science behind this. We have a fireplace in our home, and when it's quiet, certain times during the day, we will hear the pigeons on top of the fireplace. It's like an echo chamber that drives directly down through the fireplace and, and almost like a natural stereo that permeates the whole home. And you can hear these pigeons, three or four of them cooing. And if the house is quiet, 
it's it's like a I can't describe it, but it's an amazing sound. That's wonderful. You got a little sound tube going then, and I'm guessing your chimney is not uh, completely clogged up with soot because probably the sound waves are coming from from the pigeons, presumably sitting up there on the on the chimney cap, and the sound waves then bounce back and forth down that tube all the way down and, and out into the house. It's, it's a marvelous way of drawing sounds into the house. I once had a, a northern flicker, a kind of woodpecker that liked to sit on the top of chimney caps and use them as a percussive device. And so the woodpecker would drill and then that sound would come down the chimney and the whole house would be thrumming away with this woodpecker sound. So we were mm. all caught up in his breeding display in the springtime. Well, Mark, thanks for sharing. What an interesting sound you get to have in your home. Let me go next to Anthony in San Francisco. Hi, Anthony. Well, good after, good morning. I, I want to thank Dr. Haskell for bringing this extraordinary topic to uh, public awareness. I am a piano technician and have been uh, working as a piano technician for 50 years. And uh, I've got a story about where it seems sometimes when I'm going to go to my client's homes, the, the lawn care god and the piano god have gotten together, and uh, inevitably there'll be a leaf blower outside the window where I'm trying to do the piano work. So, uh, go ahead, please. Yes, no, so a couple of thoughts on that. First, on the leaf blowers. Um, well, California, of course, is in the lead at dealing with the air pollution issues associated with leaf blowers. Here in the southeast, in the fall, it's Often the air is unbreathable because of all the two-stroke engines going. But the sound produced by, by those, I mean, each leaf blower is producing hurricane force winds at the tip of its nozzle, blowing away the leaf litter, which is food for the birds and so on. We need leaf litter around our, around our houses. Of course, tidiness is, is a virtue, but too much tidiness is actually a vice, I would argue, ecologically. Um, and... There are days where you cannot go through an afternoon without having these extraordinarily loud machines um, uh, cut through through the soundscape. So I do think they are uh, problematic, and and it's not problematic because of the the people who are trying to make a living by uh, by providing services. It's the aesthetic that we're demanding that this we can't bear to see a single leaf or twig on the ground without having to have it blown away, and so that degrades the soundscape. And also, not just for us, but imagine all the breeding birds trying to communicate one to yeah. another, or breeding birds trying to build a nest in a place where hurricane-force winds are going to come and blow blow it all away. Uh, so yes, it would be challenging to tune a piano under, under those circumstances. Anthony, thanks for sharing. You're reminding me, though, as we talk about all the destructive human contributions to noise, that you also do spend a great deal of time talking about how humans have contributed to our sonic diversity. And a couple of comments coming in from listeners are also underscoring that Nico writes on Instagram, walking on crunchy fall leaves, a fire crackling, a baby cooing. Babies are part of nature. Another listener writes, the sound of jar lids popping in the summer when my mom was canning jams and jellies. Mm -hmm. I still find joy in hearing the little pop when I make jam and think so lovingly of my mom. Can you talk a little bit about how humans contribute to sonic diversity? Yes, uh, one of my favorite topics, because I do think within the environmental movement, there is 
of course, a lot of emphasis on the, the bad things that we humans are doing to the community of life. And we need to continue to emphasize that, not just emphasize it, but do something about it. On the other hand, the question is why, why love the world? And if we love the world, I think we need to love ourselves as well. We are just as natural as a, as a redwood tree. We're just as natural as the barn swallows swooping low over a lake, making their chittering sounds. So humans belong within the community of life, and our sounds do as well. And human language is one of the most extraordinary sonic uh, inventions of life, as is human music. And so, so the challenge is not to suppress the human, but to for human sounds to find their right place, their right relationship with the other sounds of the world. And I think one way into this is to realize the ecological roots of all human speech and music. For example, when we go hear a piano or go listen to a band or an orchestra, we're listening to a forest because the violins and the soundboard in the piano and the wood in the guitars and the mandolins comes from forests. We're hearing the second sound, the second life of trees. The oboes are blowing through mpingo wood from, from East Africa. The reed of the oboe comes from a, a reed growing on the a swamp that? plant. Uh, horsehair uh, in, in violin bows. So music offers this profoundly ecological experience, deep embodiment within the community of life. And, and I'm hoping as we move into an era of more ecological awareness that we can realize this more. I love this. We're listening to a violin. I just asked our engineer to play what you really do describe as human nature synergies when we're hearing a human playing a violin. Yes, that is a piece written by Catherine Lehman about the olive tree, played on the 19th century violin. And so it's hearing all kinds of wood and forest coming through. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the world's sonic diversity and why it's at risk with biologist David George Haskell, author of the new book, Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. And you, our listeners, are welcome to join and have been joining the conversation by telling us your favorite sounds or what sounds you may already miss as we are hearing less and less these days. What sound from the natural world do you fear losing most as a result of that? 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. You can post them on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And of course, you can ask any questions you want about the properties of sound, as David Haskell is such an expert in all of that. But let me read some more of your contributions uh, this listener writes on Instagram, the sound of pelicans' wings flying low over you on the beach. Another listener writes, seagulls without the sound of crashing waves. Although the waves are magical, the seagulls alone, especially in San Francisco's outer sunset district, just say home to me. Another listener writes, rain and little frogs chirping or sprinklers and crickets or light rain hitting the concrete. And Misty writes, the sounds of streams and rivers finding their way back to the ocean Hot springs rising to the surface to become a stream, water gently moving. We also got this voicemail from Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. Hi, my name is Jessica. I'm from Katati, and my favorite sound is a yellow-crowned sparrow, and it sounds like this. I hear it every spring and every early fall, and it gives me comfort. And David Haskell gives us comfort, one of the things that we've definitely been talking about through all of this. If we care about maintaining and expanding or trying to expand sonic diversity at this stage um, where the earth is so rapidly changing, what can we do? I think we, there are a number, many things we can do, but starting with the everyday is that uh, one of the things I try to do with my students over the years is open our senses to the stories that are present around us in the everyday sensory experiences that, that we have. And sound is a marvelous place to start because sound goes through walls. It goes around obstacles. Uh, you can hear what's happening when often you cannot see what is happening. Sound also is an invitation into appreciation of the diversity of life, the, the many voices of other species. It's also a great teacher about problems of environmental injustice and environmental racism. Why is it that certain neighborhoods and in, in cities have highways routed through them, are exposed to high levels of, of urban noise and traffic noise and air pollution than others. And those are easily measured, easily assessed through, through sound. So by listening to our own neighborhoods, uh, both for the, for the beauty, but also the brokenness around us, we can get a sense of what is it that my talents, my gifts and talents can do to mesh with the world to produce productive change in my own community here. And I think the more we can ground our action and activism in lived experience of the senses, the more we are Ill, invulnerable to fake news and to the manipulations and distortions of electronic algorithms. So listen to the birds. They're not coming through an algorithm. Listen to the sound of the rain. 
pay attention to the to the cycles of the seasons. These are things that are not mediated by uh, for-profit organizations or by political groups trying to promote one agenda or another. So at the level of the individual, awakening the senses is a simple, but I think a fairly radical act of resistance uh, and reconnection. Collectively then, we also need to do things in this globalized economy, which is founded on sensory disconnection. When I open a cardboard box that I've had mailed to me with a bunch of goods in it that come that were made from, say, a rainforest in Southeast Asia or some cornfields in Iowa, I have no connection whatsoever to the merchants who produce this good, the people whose lives are affected and the, the other species whose lives are affected in the ecosystem. Sensory disconnection. So how do we heal that? One is by relocalizing economies, and the second is by trying to cast our imaginations into other places. What are the frogs, the birds, and most important, the people of, for example, tropical forests telling us about the state of the forest now? What are they hearing? What can we hear through their ears, and how are we called to act? And particularly in tropical forests, which are massively threatened right now, and also the, the key areas for both human rights, biodiversity, and carbon storage, all the great crises of our, our modern era. What are people telling us? They're telling us we've got a deep problem here, and we need your help. And of course, there are lots of uh, NGOs who are, who are working hard to, to deliver that help. So listening is something for the everyday, but it also needs to happen globally if we are participants in a global economy. Wow. Jane in San Leandro, join us. Hi, Jane. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, this is a wonderful conversation. I'm so happy to hear it. I was led to the study of um, sound healing and sound and consciousness um, as a musician, a singer. And uh, then I did a certificate program and studied sound healing and a master's degree um, at California Institute of Integral Studies, uh, a wonderful school in San Francisco. And I fell in love with resonance. And I wanted to just share a few tidbits. I mean, I could go on for a long time, but just a few tidbits, which is that um, so many cultures have sound as part of their origin stories. Um, and I would also uh, mention the work of a German uh, geneticist and chemist named Friedrich Kramer, whose theory was that um, it, was, it was sound that was literally holding the universe together through the principle of connection that your guest spoke to, connection and resonance that was literally holding mm. the world together. Wow. And uh, one of the most fascinating things, uh, this will be the last thing I'll say, but one of the most fascinating things I, I learned was really on my first day of study, which was about a farmer in Wisconsin. And I'm sorry I don't have you know all the details about it, but a farmer in Wisconsin who discovered that when he introduced birdsong into his, his crop yield increased by, I don't know, tenfold or something, an amazing <laughs> amount. And he discovered that the aggregate frequency of birdsong, which was about 4,000 hertz, was helpful to the crops. And my reaction to that was nature is already doing it for us if we just allow it. Um, and so... That's what I wanted to leave. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, Jane. And a literal example, again, of how sound is generative, uh, David Haskell. Let me go to caller Nancy in Redlands. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Can you hear me? I can. Go right ahead. 
Oh, well, first of all, I just want to thank uh, Dr. Haskell for his marvelous books. I just adored them. Well, I read two. I'll be looking forward to the new one. I am a thank very you. auditory person, and there are so many sounds that I adore. Um, many have been, you know, mentioned leaves in autumn falling on the ground, walking through them, the rain on the roof, the rain on a pool, um, and of course the many, many bird voices, the flapping of wings as birds fly across the sky. I mean, there are just endless, endless sounds but I am very oppressed by machine sounds. Mm. I find them very, very difficult to take. Yeah. Well, yeah. Nancy, you're certainly not alone. Uh, Severiano tweets, I have hyperacusis, a disorder that leaves me with extremely sensitive hearing, so I can empathize with sea creatures who are having their sound habitats invaded by humans. For example, one sound I find painful is the sound of garbage trucks. David Haskell. Yes. And that, you know, the, I mean, just to pick up on all of, all of those comments, I mean, starting maybe with the, the question of resonance and healing, I think this is one of the things that is, is so important about music, about singing, about playing musical instruments. We join together one to another because of course music is, is communicative. It's about transcending the limits of the individual to connect to the creativity and the expression of others. And those waves, are, of course, they're coming in through their ears, but they're also bathing our entire body. And particularly when we are producing the sound ourselves, our chest, our neck, all of these areas are, are vibrating. And there's, there's, there's good evidence that that indeed is calming and healing and, and promoting the sort of the relaxation and response and the, the connection response. I learned this um, th both through singing, with playing guitar, but also late in life, I came to trying to play the violin and realizing that the violin's sounds, of course, are flowing into the air, but also for the player, they're coming up through the jawbone because you're holding the, the violin lightly under your, under your jaw. And, and that's recapitulating the evolution of mammalian hearing because the inner ear bones in, our, the, in the, the middle ear are in fact derived embryologically from the jaw. And so playing a violin is a very atavistic experience because it's connecting to our, to our mammalian heritage. In terms of negative experience of machine sounds, and, and of course we live in an environment where in a single day now, we can experience more sudden unpredictable sounds than our ancestors probably experienced in an entire lifetime. And so we need to find coping strategies that will depend on the individual for how to deal with that. For some people, it's noise-canceling headphones. For other people, it's reframing the experience of at least some machine sound. And sometimes I think of it as, this is dinosaur sound coming back out through the earth. So not literally dinosaurs, but algae that grew in the age of dinosaurs were fossilized and turned into oil. We're now burning that through a diesel truck and that energy, that sun energy that has been trapped for sometimes hundreds of millions of years is now released in an exultant roar into the world. And so occasionally looking into deep time, the origin of the sound waves that are coming from, from machine noise helps me be a little less annoyed, irritated, and physiologically activated around it is that, well, I'm listening to a different form of sunlight. 
Hmm. Now, of course, I realize that for, for many, including myself, for many people, there's a limit to how much you can reconceptualize. And sometimes you just need to get away or modify your environment in a way to, to, to minimize that um, to minimize that distress. And it's not just a sort of mental annoyance. There's very good evidence, for example, from Europe, where this has been very well studied, that, for example, over 40,000 new cases of heart disease in Europe are, every year are directly attributable to noise pollution because noise activates and inflames the body from within that creates physiological responses. It's associated with heart disease, diabetes, uh, mental distress, poor learning. So, so noise pollution is sometimes put on the, the bottom of the list of, of, of problematic pollutions, but it's in fact extremely important. And a very large proportion of our population now that we've become more and more urbanized and living closer to human sources of noise are afflicted by this in very direct physical ways and in ways that are tearing up the psyche. Oh, so more research into that, I imagine, is something that you would recommend. We're talking with Dr. David George Haskell, Professor of Biology and Environmental Studies at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. We're talking about the world's sonic diversity, why it's under threat, why human activity <laughs> noises are either smothering or destroying natural sounds and affecting our ability to hear each other. His book is Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. Of course, you, our listeners, are sharing the sounds you love. This listener writes, um, I, am a I am from a city in the northern Mexican desert where the coyotes howl at night. The screech of the Mexican brown eagle while it soars through the dry waves of hot air, the slithering murmur of the sand that travels across the pavers in my patio, and the maracas, the rattlesnake, dances too. Um, Kai tweets, I actually really enjoy the calls of a peacock in our North Oakland neighborhood. Some have complained, but their complaints were overwhelmed by support. I like having a natural sound occasionally interrupting city noise around here. Again, talking about framing and thinking about the cacophony in, in more delightful ways, it sounds like. And Rebecca writes, my mother is a, p a private piano instructor and her studio is off the back of her house. Over the decades as an instructor, many birds have assembled along the utility wires that cross her backyard and sing along as her students play certain pieces of music. Uh, let me go to caller Tony in Angwin. Hi, Tony. Hey, good morning. How are you? Well, what's on your mind, Tony? Well, for me, uh, <laughs> I work, I'm a union plumber, Local 38 in San Francisco. You can imagine what a construction site, how noisy it is. So when I get home to Angwin, every so often, I'm treated to the sound of these two owls uh, that live in the forest behind our, our home. And at night, I'll hear them, and I'll open the bedroom window, and it's like, it's definitely quiet where we live. And you can hear these two owls communicating and i'll wake up my wife and i said babe listen and she'll listen and then and she'll hear it sometimes she's like oh that's great you know and then a lot of times she goes yeah you woke me up but i just think for me it is so captivating and soothing to sit there and listen really hard you'll hear one of them and then you hear one in the distance someplace and it's just very soothing for me that's just a personal oh. thing i want to share that with you guys 
Oh, thank you, Tony. David? What a, what a wonderful story. And it's, it's a reminder, you know, as we're caught up in the busyness of our lives and our, our work, that, that the, there are other lives around us, owl lives and tree lives and, and the lives of toadfish and other creatures that, that draw imaginations out of our own world into the, into the modern human world. I think that's a delight. There's something about owls, too, that's wonderful because they're so low frequency very soothing and during our embryonic development the first sounds that we heard uh, when we were still in our mother's womb were low frequency sounds because that's the first part of the the auditory system that develops and then the womb itself doesn't let all the high frequency sounds in so we were cocooned in, in a very in a, in a place dominated by the bass, including the bass of her, her heart beating. And so the owls, in a way, are drawing us back into that low-frequency sound, mm. that place of, of, of protection. Well, Daniel, Danielle writes, hearing Dr. Haskell's recordings contain so much life immediately made me think of the first time I heard life inside of me. My daughter's heartbeat was the most beautiful and inspiring sound that connected me to my own body's ability to make life. It was profound. Well, David Haskell, I can't thank you enough for, for reminding us and bringing us to our senses, our sense of hearing and, and, and how we're all so connected in terms of creating um, and also protecting uh, sonic diversity. Wonderful. Thank you. I hope your listeners will go out and celebrate and share the, the great sounds in, in their world. Yes, I think you referenced there was a 100 Soundscapes of Japan project that is really an example of trying to honor and protect sound. We're just about at the end of the show, but if you want to devote 10 seconds to, to why that spoke to you. Yes, that, that, that project is a government-sponsored project that, that picks out and celebrates particular soundscapes, not because they're noise or pollution, but because they're part of the nature and the culture of Japan. And I think we need that everywhere. Every town needs its favorite 100 soundscapes. Well, it's called Peace Bell, and maybe it feels really appropriate because it's audio of the Peace Bell in Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park. David Haskell, again, my thanks to you and his book is Sounds Wild and Broken. I also want to thank our listeners for being not just listeners, but contributors to today's sonic diversity in our program. Caroline Smith produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. 
How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.